Hello there, I'm Patrick Struff. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Adam Cook, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer of Culper Capital Partners. Based in Norwood, New Jersey, Culper Capital Partners invests debt and equity in middle market companies that seek true partnership solutions that go well beyond the capital deployed. So I don't want to steal Adam's thunder here. I'm very glad to have him because Culper Capital Partners is a newly minted private equity firm, which is illustrative of the growing body of private equity out there. There are uh, a real healthy market when new firms are emerging, and that's good. So Adam, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's a uh, pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Now, before we get into your firm, let's set the table. Tell us what led you to this part, this point in your career. So, you know, in, in 1997 or 1998, I, I, I remember myself uh, licking customer uh, confirmation envelopes uh, while I was working at uh, an, an audit firm. And uh, a few folks kind of scurried into the room and, and went into uh, one of the manager's offices and then came out about 25 minutes later and uh, it grabbed a few of us and said, hey, we've got kind of a new assignment for you. And while I can't talk about the details of the deal, uh, back then it was a very large transaction. And uh, they, they uh, had me working on um, a part of a team that was basically analyzing uh, what the present value of um, an underfunded pension plan uh, would have to be funded at closing. It's called a, um, a rabbi trust that would have to be created. So I, I was automatic. I was kind of thrown in out of nowhere uh, into this uh, new universe of M&A, albeit a very uh, specific uh, portion. And I'm not sure how long uh, that transaction went on, uh, but uh, I was hooked uh, ever, uh, ever since the, uh, that time. Um, so stayed in audit for a very short uh, period of my career, and then went into uh, M and A, and uh, really never looked back. And so you caught you caught the bug. I caught the bug. Uh, not that there's anything uh, wrong with uh, with audit, but it sure beat uh, licking uh, customer envelopes. I would consider mergers and acquisitions is probably the most exciting business event out there. I'm sure there are people that really love the IPO world, but I think for the, the larger business community, because it happens to so many more people, is such a milestone that that's the big, that's the big event out there. Yeah, and I've been very lucky uh, throughout my career, not only to um, you know, kind of witness uh, the value that M&A could create, not only for shareholders, but also for customers, you know, uh, bringing kind of a smaller target, uh, you know, up to speed from a professional perspective and, you know, different revenue channels and products, giving employees new opportunities, uh, you know, with more opportunities as part of a, you know, larger scale uh, organizations, but also spent a bunch of time early in my career uh, and throughout the latter part of my M&A career before we'll get into what we're going to talk about today in terms of how M&A uh, you know, uh, shape the latter, you know, part of what I'm doing, but also on protecting the downside when a company is in trouble or there is an issue with a business, but it's got true value. There might have been, uh, you know, nothing that management did uh, while the company is in trouble. It could be, you know, a, um, you know, a catastrophic event. It could be that their products were tied to some commodity uh, 
that uh, was spiking uh, for a longer period of time. And, uh, you know, their product costs were out of control, uh, you know, for macro issues, or it could be management. But M&A often serves as a function as well, uh, not only to preserve the true value of a company, but to preserve, uh, you know, jobs that would otherwise go away if uh, consolidation didn't take place. So, you know, in, in that portion of my career, it was certainly rewarding to see what the process could do for, um, you know, not only the creation of value, but at the employee level, I think sometimes there's a misnomer that uh, with M&A jobs go away. I saw quite the opposite uh, in terms of kind of the aggregate amount of employment, uh, M&A allowing, um, you know, that employment to continue in, in uh, distressed situations. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. I think there's a the cynical view of uh, private equity, it's summed up in four words, buy low and sell high. The way you bring things down is the, the traditional view is, well, you're, you're letting people go. So you're cutting costs, and you're bringing cost energies together. That's not necessarily it. I mean, there are a lot of companies that are well-run, well-managed, but they get to a point, one author called it no man's land, where the management in place can only get so big, and then they need another skill set to go to the next level. And you're, you're not too small to run unnoticed. You get to a size where you got to take another level, another step up, otherwise you're going to have a problem. And who better than somebody that's done that time and time and time again successfully, you know, to hold your hand and bring you there. Then we'll talk, it's a, it's a good point. We'll talk about the Glebar story uh, later uh, in the podcast. But when I bought Glebar uh, and I was also, I was kind of owner operator in that situation yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't slash cost. It was quite the opposite, right? Moved to a world-class facility, spent millions on capital equipment and building out, you know, that world-class space, not only uh, to have a place where our customers could come in and kind of fit, fit the bill for that, but, you know, a nice safe place uh, where our employees could work and, and feel proud, you know, doubled headcount, right? So I think we are certainly very growth-orientated uh, at, at Culper. Sure, if there's waste, you know, I think that, uh, you're robbing the entire company and all the employees that are there, regardless of the, what that waste is. But, you know, our mantra is to redeploy uh, that waste and to, you know, turn that scrap into gold, if you will. Yeah, well, you can't save your way to prosperity is the way I always look at that. Tell us about Call Per Capital Partners. And I always like asking um, uh, people like you, just where did you come up with the name to give us an insight on just the angle you came and tell us a little bit about, about this organization. So for Culver, we're investing in, you know, middle market uh, businesses. We'll focus uh, on things that we can see and touch. We will make, um, you know, debt investments where we're riding along with, you know, whether it's a BDC or, you know, traditional lending companies where we'll take, you know, more passive, uh, you know, pieces of, of, of debt. Uh, but really focused in on the uh, platform equity side where uh, we're putting um, our own money to work along with our business partners to find bespoke opportunities where, you know, it's well beyond the capital deployed. If someone's just looking for capital in a platform investment, we're probably not the right partner. Uh, we are going to be more of, uh, we're not going to work at the company, so not be management, but we're going to be more owner operator than uh, you know, just strategic uh, advisor. So what does that, you know, what does that mean? That means, you know, our team, uh, you know, focused really on industrial solutions, medical device, healthcare services, 
uh, where we could put our M&A experience uh, to work, like traditional private equity, to find add-on opportunities that'll bring arbitrage and create additional revenue channels to sell through our market channel, you know, arbitrage, if you will, product synergies. Um, we are going to evaluate um, whether the ERP systems are up to date. Often in lower middle market companies, there's so much low-hanging fruit, you know, in that investment, and albeit it takes a lot of time. We're going to build sales organization to create sales organizations that uh, are measured, tracked, held accountable, are not just looking to uh, maintain existing customer relationships, but to go out and get new ones, to foster new opportunities within your existing customer base as well, to consultive sell so that your customer is getting everything, maximum value out of what you're providing, right? That ROI. So eventually, you know, their products are bought and not sold, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, kind of our mantra is really, I would say on average, we're going to spend about, you know, you know, 40 hours a week collectively as a group where we can add that expertise into an environment where we found a great company with great people and really good leaders, but that we can help professionalize it, you know, from a sales perspective, from an infrastructure perspective, you know, to, um, you know, really have, you know, employees kind of feel like they can grow as enterprise uh, value grows. Um, and truly partner with them. Not that there's anything wrong with the traditional private equity model, but just for us, I think we're going to look at two to three portfolio companies at any given point in time. Um, I would extremely doubt if it would be more than that from a uh, if we're the lead uh, and really focus on putting uh, those resources in place. We, we just brought on a medical device expert that's been in uh, the industry for you know, 25 to 30 years in leadership positions. He was actually a customer of mine when I was the CEO of Glebar, uh, you know, because we're, you know, kind of heavily involved in looking at opportunities in the medical device space, right? So we really want to be able to bring uh, much more than that, uh, you know, that check to the table. It's got to be real attractive for prospective targets out there, the management, where you're going to make them best of breed. You're going to get them out there and have them excellent. I think the, the saying I heard, I'm stealing it from somebody else, but Nobody wants to buy or subscribe to uh, the second best software security system out there. They want the best. And that's what you're specifically uh, offering out there is bringing them to the level. They probably are at a high level already. Otherwise, you wouldn't have an appetite for them. But to get to be that best of breed and stay there uh, comfortably and move at that, at that higher platform I think it's very, very exciting. There's a great value uh, opportunity that you guys are offering. You mentioned Glebar before. Why don't you share that experience if that's a, uh, a case study that uh, you could share with me? Sure. So um, Glebar, uh, not just because I owned it and ran it, uh, but is truly a, uh, a gem uh, uh, of a company. When I learned about the company, I said, wow, what amazing technology. I'm not sure if these folks realize what they really have here. Uh, but to be respectful of uh, the old owner, because he made a lot of money, um, it was run, you know, a bit like a, um, a small deli, uh, you know, versus a world-class uh, organization. While they had such talented people, including the old owner, um, he's one of the smartest engineers I've ever met to date, and he's 85 years old, and that's another statement. Wow. 
they didn't know the definition of sales. It was, you know, if you build it, they will come, uh, if you will. Um, it was, well, this is the way we do things. And it was a whole lot of talking and not a whole lot of listening uh, to the customer. And it was an engineering company. And that's great. It still remains that intimate engineering company today. But what we really did was kind of turn that into a sales organization where go out and see your customers and con consult with them, become their partner to where, you know, again, I, I use the term a lot, uh, where your products are, are bought, not sold. That's really the value proposition that uh, your customers should demand of you. Uh, and we really turned that into a sales organization over time. Uh, we also uh, really focused in on the customer and employee experience, right? We moved from, you know, uh, two and a half, if you will, uh, old facilities that were kind of, you know, beaten down. We had to walk parts across the street in a winter storm to what we considered, um, you know, was more indicative of the products that Glebar sold, the world-class facility you know, where employees uh, would feel good about going to, you know, it had world-class filtration, uh, you know, uh, everything was always kept up to uh, from a, you know, from a safety perspective, and they were really given the opportunity um, to thrive. So on day one, you know, we kind of decided, hey, we're, we're, we're moving, uh, and we did that. We also needed to, uh, you know, play the part, if you will, in terms of, hey, if we're going to have a Fortune 500 customer base, and then that level below that, uh, not that we don't have that, that we didn't have smaller customers, but we need to we need to practice what we preach here. So instead of telling the customer, "Hey, you can't go back there. We've got some top secret thing going on," uh, you know, I, I think that you know we spent a ton of money on, you know, not only uh, new capital equipment of our of our own, but really mapping out the the facility logistically and having it be lean and safe and something where you could be efficient where our customers should say yeah we should we should really uh you know not just do business with someone i, I don't even like the word customer they have to become a trusted partner and i think that's a you know real part of what we did i think the biggest thing what we did and and, and certainly we're going to do this at our our portfolio companies here at culper you, you have to incentivize people not that people aren't going to work hard for their paycheck um, they are, but you need to align them with what you're trying to do, not only from a dollars and cents perspective, you know, but also from a cultural perspective, a safety perspective, a, you know, an overall value perspective. I always often use the phrase, you know, if you're not adding value anymore and you're still sitting at your desk, you know, go for a run or whatever you like to do. If you still come back to your desk that day and you don't have any value, go home. If you don't have any value to add that day. Right. And um, and that not because I was trying to be negative. It was a positive thing. Right. Meaning, you know, we celebrated failures at Glebar. Right. Because if you can't celebrate failures, you're never going to be able to take those risks to win. Yeah. And I think with aligning employee incentives, uh, you know, with where you're trying to go um, is uber important. I think that the, the most gratification I got uh, when uh, we sold. Um, Glebar to Arcline, and I, I still maintain a, a minority position, uh, was seeing the faces of key employees that participated in that transaction with the look of shock on their face, um, you know, when, when you told them, um, you know, um, 
what they were going to receive, you know, receive in proceeds. So um, I think alignment um, and not only alignment with your employees, but everyone, your suppliers and seeing value in everything that you, uh, you know, that you do in that ecosystem of that company that you own. Uh, I'm very pleased that we're having this on a recording and I'm going to encourage everybody to have a re-listen to this. Those uh, steps that you took are, are absolutely fantastic and very, very thorough and it took a little bit of faith or quite a bit of faith, I can imagine, because these weren't small capital outlays to get the physical plant put together and, and everything else lined up. But it was great because you, you can tell clearly that you had it in your heart and you had it in your core that this is the direction we're going to go. We're not going to worry about short-term outcomes. We've got you know, a long-term goal here. And I, I just cannot vision anybody not embracing that approach. And I, you know, it's, it's fun. It's a different parallel. But um, you know, I coach uh, junior football. And what I tell all the kids all the time is we have an eat philosophy here. And it's no different in anything else you're trying to achieve in life, whether it's business or um, you know, uh, being a good uh, partner to, to uh, your spouse um, or raising your children, but it's effort, attitude that, you, you know, that I can attitude, mm -hmm. and then the toughness. That doesn't mean being, um, you know, uh, brash or abrasive, but being able to fight through the, you know, tough times, knowing that the sun will come out. Re resilient, absolutely. Yeah, you've got to be there. I mean, absolute words to live by. Uh, Adam, tell what's your ideal profile for a target now? What are you guys looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a founder-owned business or a second-generation business that um, truly has a differentiating product, whether it's manufactured or distributed, um, that they're in the second inning, right? So think 20 million bucks of revenue, 4 million of EBITDA, but that that founder slash owner is saying, hey, I recognize I'm in the second inning. I've done an unbelievable job at this business, but not only do I need money, but I need more than that, right? I need someone, um, you know, and when I say someone, a group of folks uh, who could kind of come in, you know, and build for the future to, to say, wow, I'm listening to these ideas and they make a whole lot of sense. And, you know, I'm going to roll X percent of my business. And you know what? The next time we sell this, if we do sell it, um, my minority position, it looks like it's going to be worth more than the entire enterprise value next time. That's the type of partner I want that is willing to listen. And, and we have to be willing to listen, too, uh, at Culper. I remember at Glebar, I had a 30-day plan, 60, 90, 180. 365, three year, five year, and I went in. And, you know, I, I sat there and, and interviewed uh, every uh, every single employee. I actually went to my first customer visit in Ireland, and after we landed, after a nine hour flight, went directly to uh, a company and actually pointed to a poster and said, "Hey, what's that?" And I said, "That's neat." And they said, "That's what you do, sir." I had no idea what even the picture was. Talk about humbling, All right? So you, you have to be willing to listen. So. Those plans that I had put together after I, I went on those customer visits, did a lot of listening, not only to customers, but our employees and suppliers alike. Uh, three months later, pretty much 75% of uh, those plans that I put together had materially changed. Okay. Right. So, I, I, you know, I think that there really needs to be, uh, you know, that openness there. And, 
hey, look, you know, I think Lebar, for example, I got it from the second inning to the bottom of the fourth. Wow. Right. And I think the next buyer and, and that bottom of the fourth from and, and this is not being boastful, but I think it was pretty impressive. It's a unbelievable company today that our clients going to do phenomenal with. Um, but, you know, my belief as well is that, you know, you should only own a business as long as you are going to continue to drive that value. And you know what? There probably comes another point where, you know, I remove myself as CEO uh, you know, last June, because I said to myself, okay, now is the time to bring in that professional CEO. Okay. Which I did from Stryker, um, a gentleman from Stryker. But then in addition to that, we really needed to start focusing in on M&A, which was my background. And we went out and did an add on, uh, that is, you know, really impactful for the business. Had we not done that, had I not recognized that that was time, we probably wouldn't have been able to go out and get that uh, get that um, deal done. There'll also come a point, uh, you know, because we were a change agent at Glebar when we came in, where we, you know, say, hey, look, we need a fr- new, fresh set of eyes. This thing now is a potential for, to go from we got it from, you know, C to F. Well, somebody else needs to come in now with a whole new, you know, thought process and you know, disciplines, if you will, to get it from F to S. Um, and I really do believe that. So we'll, we'll never stand in the way of uh, a company's growth or their potential. Outstanding. If you could share with me your experience with rep and warranty insurance, good, bad, or indifferent, if, if applicable. You know, so as I was thinking about this podcast and thinking of rep and warranty insurance, um, I thought back to approximately about 15 years ago. I forgot where I was and what I was doing, but I was talking about a rather large deal and, um, you know, hearing more about rep and warranty insurance. And back then it was for really large transactions. And I remember I wrote a one-page article. I forgot where it was published, but M&A insurance with a big, you know, exclamation point. I probably still have it at home. It was probably very, very generic uh, and, uh, you know, probably didn't get a lot of reads. Uh, But, you know, now it's completely changed the landscape um, of transactions. I mean, we're we're working on a deal now. With enterprise value of you know thirty to forty million, and and rep and warranty insurance is available. So, to me, why is it important to the sell, uh, to the seller? Um, I think that you know it obviously limits the amount of you know uh, escrow baskets that they have to uh, you know put up uh, for uh, a year or more. So that's great. They get to you know uh, they get to extrapolate more cash up front without having their money hung up in an escrow account, earning little to nothing. And get to go ahead and invest that. I think for the seller, certainly, um, you know, it it provides risk mitigation. But I think more importantly that, uh, than that for the seller, I think it further illustrates, you know, that you've got to do your diligence, right? So the insurance provider is not going to underwrite the transaction unless you really dive deep in the areas that they're going to give you protection for. So I think it it's really focused uh, buyers, if you will, I should say to really dive deep uh, because the insurance companies uh, require it. Not that they didn't dive deep before, but I, I think it's for, further risk mitigation as it relates and correlates to purchase price. So I, I think it's changed, you know, the discipline a bit. And I think it clearly, um, you know, helps seller in terms of, you know, that cash, gen, you know, that cash being available. Um, but, you know, then offers a level of protection to buyer that otherwise wouldn't uh, be available, especially to lower middle market folks. Yeah, the since that uh, first uh, piece you you wrote 15 years ago, it's been a been a lot of change. It's almost 
as much change as online online businesses. I mean, right. night and day. I think it did it, it did not get a lot of traction because the cost was very big in the early days, and also the coverage was very very narrow. I mean, for example, in in Silicon Valley, uh, you couldn't get past first base on on rep and warranty because it excluded intellectual property reps. So it accelerates the process, and I think it, it particularly when you're trying to attract management. Uh, over from the target over avoiding hammering them into the ground over terms because you have a lot more leverage is really a good long-term strategy. I mean, you were talking about all the great things that you do for quality of life and trying to get people all on board with you. It starts. It can start there with management, and it's just one way that eases it through. And I think what I'm very happy about for us is that it was a product that was reserved for the larger middle market deals north of $100 million of transaction value. And there are so many owners and founders that don't get to $100 million, but they get to $20 and $30 million, and they could really benefit from this. And that's the one thing that's happened in the last about 16 months is that a number of insurance carriers come in and they're targeting those sub $50 million transaction value deals. They're coming in with really competitive rates. They're broad coverage, just as broad as, as larger deals. And the eligibility standards are easier. Now, Adam, as we're in this period of the year, uh, COVID-19 is still around. We're, we were stumbling and uh, trying to get our legs under us to open up a little more full. And we're having some roadblocks here. How do you see from your perspective, either COVID or non-COVID, on, on the future of M&A for, let's say, you know, through the end of 2020 into 2021? Look, I mean, I think in the intermediate term, uh, M&A is going to come back in a big way. Uh, I think, uh, you know, M&A has obviously been hot for so long. Uh, but, you know, let's face it, there's going to be businesses that are struggling to come out of uh, COVID on the other side, particularly lower middle market businesses, where I think consolidation is going to be more important than ever before. Uh, to save a lot of these businesses. So the intermediate term, I think, you know, we see a volume, um, you know, that, you know, that matches 19 or even higher. Okay. Um, I think that in the short term, I think it was Blackstone. I saw someone reference the other day about M&A is, you know, going to continue to slow until people could shake hands again. Um, I believe that, uh, you know, uh, where we're the lead investor, I'm not doing a deal unless I could look someone in the eye. Um, and I think that's extremely important. So I think in the short term, people are going to have to get creative. Uh, you're going to have to travel safely to be able to go, you know, walk the floor, see how the culture is at the company. How do the employees look when they're working? You know, all of these things are really, really important and go well beyond just the dollars and cents that you can see in a spreadsheet doing diligence or in a Zoom call where you can't, you know, read uh, body language. So I think people are going to have to adapt. I think sellers are going to have to understand that warp speed closings, you know, in 30 to 60 days are probably not going to happen, maybe for add-ons, but, you know, service providers are going to need more time. They're going to have to be able to get there and coordinate and travel safely, you know, so that kind of new normal is going to exist until, uh, you know, COVID's under control, in, in my opinion. Uh, but in the intermediate and long term, I think it, 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 it comes back, um, you know, uh, it comes back uh, in, in a very, very big way. And I think it's going to be a necessary tool uh, to save a lot of these companies that at no fault of their own are in, um, you know, are in, um, 
you know, painful positions. I can't tell you how much I appreciate all you've shared with us today because it's been very, very helpful. And I'm going to encourage our listeners. I think they're going to do it because you're, it was enjoyable enough listening to this the first time to, to repeat this. Adam, how can our listeners find you? Best way to find us is to go to uh, culpercapital.com, C-U-L-P-E-R, capital.com. I think there's, you know, it tells our story there. Um, it tells a little bit about who we are and what our approach is. And, you know, Culper is tied basically to the uh, Revolutionary War. Uh, and that's really the story is kind of, we want to, not that it has any tie to the Revolutionary War, but we want to revolutionize the way that uh, you know, the meaning of private equity and why, uh, you know, why deals are get done, get done, you know, beyond just, um, you know, um, you know, multiple uninvested capital or rate of return. Not that that's not important. Uh, it is, but there's much more to it. Well, focusing on the basics of business is uh, surprising how it can be revolutionary, particularly when it, you've got an engineering centric uh, thought process now. So I really encourage folks to go and check out Culper Capital. Adam, thank you very much. And it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks again. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate the opportunity, sir.